Hello, everybody. We've got a full house today. This is very exciting. It's, um, summer's always a bit of a touch and go month with people on vacation and stuff. So, <laughs> all right. Well, these are my boys, and they have to go back to their scenes. <laughs> A good old treat if you obey <laughs> tool. Okay. Um, so we've been going through the book of Philippians this summer, and um, I have taken up, was um, allowed to teach on Philippians 4, 2 through 9, which if you're unfamiliar with the passage, is a real beloved passage. It's... Um, often read, often quoted, often meditated on. Um, And that's a really good thing. I think there's a danger in getting an often read, often quoted passage in that if your brain's like mine, sometimes you start the first line and you're like, oh, I know this, and you kind of tune out. Um, So I've been kind of thinking about that, and I wanted to start just sharing a couple events that happened recently um, that kind of awakened me to wanting to take in the passage anew. One is kind of outward-facing, and one's a little inward-facing, so I'll quick share those stories. And then we're actually going to watch a video on the overview of Philippians as a book, because I think it sets the passage in context, which is helpful, especially for those of us who it's been a while since we've read the book. Um, So I am mostly, I am a mom, most of my time these days, but two days a week, I'm also a psychotherapist. So I work, um, I counsel people, various ages and various needs. And I work in a secular setting, so I don't do Christian counseling, but sometimes I get Christian clients. And if a client, you know, says they go to church and is in a Christian worldview, um, and it seems relevant, I'll bring up scripture. And this is a passage, I'll I'll read the section I often go over with my clients who are in this Christian worldview. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And for me, growing up in the church, this is just, you know, I've grown up with this since I was a kid. This is like like breathing, this knowledge. But I find a lot of my clients who have grown up in the church are struck by this. Like, this is a new thought. This is something they haven't read. No one's talked to them about this insight. And I'm sometimes a bit convicted about the bubble I might live in. You know, I just kind of assume if you grow up in the church or if you have had godly parents, you would have run across this. And um, it's just not the case. And I think that's helpful to just know, you know, like maybe you've loved this passage, but maybe someone you know, you know, would love, would love to hear it and it would really benefit them. It's kind of like, in my mind, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know, there's a way we can just kind of consume 
godly ideas, but the, but not activate them. And I find that's just always very humbling to me when I read this passage and I'm kind of like, this is how it goes. And they're like, wow, that's really helpful. Like, that's very good stuff. And then I'm like, it is good stuff, isn't it? You know? Um, and then the, the other story I'd like to share about this idea of being reawakened is um, a, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, my family went to a family camp, Christian family camp, where we got to have Bible teaching and the kids got kids programming and it was just the best time ever. Um, but the last day, we, we tented. So we were camping the whole time and when you're camping, the last day is like, at least for us, it's like a lot of work, you know, because you have to clean everything off and pack everything up. So the last day, my mind was just full of the details, you know, like Irene's toys and the boys' dirty, stinky clothes and like our tent and all this stuff. And I was rushing about in a cafeteria and one of the kids' teachers came up to me and was just saying how much she appreciated the kids and um, how she was, she was a volunteer and how she was thinking of doing it again. And I just flippantly said, oh, great, so maybe we'll see you next year. And she paused and looked at me, and she's like, well, maybe, but I always hope Jesus will come back, and maybe we won't be here next year. Yeah, right? And in that moment, I just felt like totally lifted out of my details. And I was like, oh my gosh, I live in a story that's just big where I'm waiting for a king. And this is overwhelming, you know, and we both kind of teared up in that moment. And, you know, it's just, again, in the passage, there's a verse that we'll, we'll go over later, but it says, the Lord is near, you know, and it really felt the Lord was near and it was transporting. And this is not to deny the importance of details. <laughs> like, it's not good to lose your kids' toys and after a fun camp. But there is something about being aware of the kingdom we live in. Um, something that Scott teached on last week was just living in this kingdom that it's not all we see. You know, there's a bigger story going on. And how wonderful to interact with that. So I want you to kind of come to today, if you can, with some of that mindset when we go into the, this passage. Maybe there's, you know, these these uh, transporting truths you might discover. Um, so actually, I'll just pray that over us, and then we'll we'll start the video. Yeah, God, we declare that. I declare over us that we live in your kingdom. And it is so much more than we see. And so I ask that you would be moving among us in our hearts and our minds and just reawakening us to your love and your nearness that in each life here, Lord, that you are near. You're nearer than we know. And so we ask that you would um, come to you with that when we come to you in the word or with each other or in our prayers. In your name, amen. Ross, can you play the video? Okay. Paul's letter to the Philippians. 
The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad, because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed... That means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism, but their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. 
This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. 
And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his great his teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. Is back on? Okay, perfect. Yeah. So, um, once Irene is gone, <laughs> um, I want to take a moment just to read the passage because that was a lot of context. And so now I want to bring forward in our minds just this, these few verses that we're going to focus on today. So I On each table, I have a couple copies if you're a hard copy person or if you brought your Bible or if you brought your phone. Uh, Pull up the passage and I'll uh, just take a couple minutes to read it. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I I plead with Udia. And I plead with Sintik to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, 
and the God of peace will be with you. Um, so I'd like you to take a moment just in the tables you're at and um, just discuss if anything new strikes you, if there's any or maybe a phrase that stands out to you in particular, and just take a couple minutes to, to share what, what's hitting you from this passage. Sound back on? Oh, perfect. Okay. All right, I'll have you turn back a little towards the front. Everyone seemed like in the middle of a really good point, so <laughs> it's very brief. I'm very sorry for that. Um, anything that anyone feels either you can elect someone at your table to share um, or you just voluntarily think 
yeah, this is kind of an interesting point that is worth sharing with the group. Anything stand out to anybody? Oh, yeah, and I'll move the mic. I noticed in the first uh, verses, it talks about Paul loving, saying he loves you, loves. Before he corrects, he shares his love for his people and that it's his joy and his crown. Yeah, bringing a word of correction from a place of love. That's definitely a theme we see in the New Testament. I was struck by the last uh, verse where Paul says, whatever you've learned, received, or, or heard, or seen in me, to, to put those into practice, it shows the confidence he had in himself in the Lord. That I don't know that any of us will be willing to make that statement for other people to follow everything that they've heard, seen, or in us. But it really shows the, the, the love he had, the confidence that he had in the Lord. That's very true. Hey, thanks. Uh, John pointed out that these two women were important enough. The work they were doing was notable enough to Paul that he gave them a shout-out by name and pleaded for them to work together. So it was something about them together that was valuable enough. And, you know, here 2,000 years we're still reading about them in brief and I really want to know what were they arguing about (laughs) I often get when Bible reading I get on these bunny trails about Lord you know okay Doug and then I'll get to you Jethro I'm sure you've heard the analogy of bank tellers that are um, back in the day, the way they learn about what confederate, um, uh, what's the word? Thank you. Counterfeit money is you just spend a lot of time looking at the good money, and then when something bad comes up, they see it. And um, I, I went very practical with this of our society bombards us with negative things. And um, this passage is saying, I mean, you, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with spelling out what's negative about various things, but just concentrate on the positive. Just spend time on the positive, and that that's probably the best anecdote to the negative. Jether, did you want to say anything? Okay, real, real quick, buddy. think that the jail part um, is showing the confidence of Paul being a hero, saving other jailers and his friends. Yeah, that's right. I...
You can take all the kids to the park if you want, Zach. <laughs> okay. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you guys brought up some really good points. I think sometimes I've read this verse and I've been a little annoyed at it. Like, ah, oh, it's so easy to just say this to me when I'm having such a hard time, you know, in my life. And then I think about the context. Like, this guy's in jail, you know, and he's writing these things. So maybe maybe he has something to teach me. Um, right? And maybe what he's saying is true. You know, he's in a much harder position than I am. Um, I think this idea of giving an example is also, um, Russ, what you were saying. Really, what struck me when you said it was just a little bit of conviction. Like, oh yeah, I would actually never give my life as an example because (laughs) there's a lot going on. Like, not in a self-deprecating way, but there's just a lot of need for, you know, growth. And I think maybe a lot of us could relate to that. And, you know, Paul isn't a perfect person. There's no person that's perfect, but he's willing to, like, um, really test these truths that Jesus gave to him and work them in his life. And he's noticing that there's things happening in his life that are pretty awesome and would bring a lot of peace and freedom to people. And he's willing to just put it out there. Um, so anyway, that just struck me. Yeah. Or maybe we have a culture of, of seeing the glass half full, you know, and only looking at our sin instead of looking at all the things God has done for us. And how much our life should be different. Yeah. yeah. Our perspective on our own lives is a little anemic, and it keeps us from offering it to others. Yeah, I think that's probably very true, too. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to offer our, you know, fishes and loaves because there's too few, not knowing that Jesus' kind of interaction with us is what's the cool part, you know, yeah. Um, I, for me, I think I think because I have a bit of a biased lens of being a psychotherapist, what struck me is just this, the psychological power of this, Um He's talking about being anxious, like don't don't be anxious about anything. And I sort of want to rebel against that, like, well, there should be a space for anxiety. Like there should be a space for my my feelings in this. And I don't think this time reading it, I don't think he's saying there's not a space. I think he's saying there is a momentum you can take these feelings to that's awfully cool, that invites God's interaction with you and there's a cost to not doing that you know there's a cost to sitting with your feelings of anxiety well warranted if you're in jail I might add Um, but what do you have you have a bad situation and then layered on a very difficult feeling like a like a double suffering you know and so there's an invitation here, I think a wisdom being offered. You don't have to live with the double suffering. 
Like you can have a hard situation and you can invite God to miraculously, mystically, powerfully interact with you. And this is good, good fodder for prayer and even Thanksgiving. Um, so that's, that's something that struck me. And I think it, it goes hand in hand with this idea of where we focus our mind. You know, our minds are not, um, they're not like this trusting free agent, you know. They're kind of like up for sale. You know, a lot of people are bidding for our attention. Um, and we don't have kind of the, we don't really have the ability to exactly tune out our lives. We have to focus on things. And our focus as humans is very limited. You know, you, if you focus on one thing, you can't focus on the other thing across the room. You know, some people can sort of multitask, but most of us are very bad at it, if we're honest. But even beyond that, we can't take in the whole world. It's just too vast. We have to have these narrow viewpoints. And so what we choose to focus those narrow viewpoints on lights up our whole inner life. And it's it's very important we take on the mantle of that responsibility, if that makes sense. You know, when I think about my kids, <laughs> I spend so much time um, trying to nurture their minds. I think anyone who's a parent has that feeling of like, you know the diet of the mind is important, and you guard it, you introduce certain ideas, you wait on certain ideas. Um, but then when I think about my own life, I'm a little less careful, you know. I'm maybe let myself watch a show that brings me to a negative space, or I dwell on a slightly imperfect relationship until it's like the whole thing I'm thinking about all day. Um, there's just these ways we get like sort of into some space that I think if we took a step back, we'd notice, wow, this is really corrupting my relationships or this is making me physically ill, <laughs> or, you know, you name it. You've probably had some sensation of this. And I think we can kind of get into a uh, mode of helplessness about it. Well, this is my life, you know. Well, this is just what everyone's watching. Or how could I live without social media, you know, whatever it is. And... Um, this passage, I feel like, really awakens, awakened me to this idea of like, no, there's like a responsibility I have, and it's not, there's a practice I can have about these things. You know, there's like something I can do about this. I don't have to just float along and be um, nurtured by whatever is the whim of the day or whatever I happen to feel inclined to give my attention to. And this can be pretty life-changing. I feel like... Um, I, and I'm, I want to give an example of this, but not really... I don't want to put this on anybody. This is like my story. Um, about six years ago, I gave up all social media. And the day I did it, 
I felt such a weight off my shoulders. Like it was like physiological. It was just, it really was life changing. And I wasn't even a big consumer. I had like a very small few like Instagram people I'd watch or um, a few friends on Facebook. And ever since then, I've just never looked back. It's like brought so much contentment to my life. And it's because I just got rid of a tempting area of focus. You know, I simplified my life in one area. I'm sure we could all think of some area where we've let things go and maybe it's affecting our life. Like maybe peace does feel really far, you know. I think a lot of people feel this like vague anxiety over their lives. Um, I certainly encounter that in my office. And doing these like small changes can really be quite freeing. And so um, one of the questions I want you to talk amongst your group, and this will be like kind of near the end, is I want you to think about with each other, what are some areas of focus that are really doing good things in your life? Like maybe it's a quiet time you've resurrected or um, something inspiring you've been trying to put some time into or the opposite. Like what's something you feel like, yeah, like when you think about it, this has really been making your life trail or making it get off course or poisoning a relationship, just something like that. Um, so yeah, take, take about five minutes and share as you feel comfortable in your group. All right, I'm going to have us stop our sharing again probably too early. But I know we're going to have some prayer time later, so... Um. Yeah, I guess my maybe some a couple of questions I want you guys to feel like you can take away and meditate on um, is thinking about and asking the Lord, you know, inviting Him into the process of what stands in the way of cultivating a better inner life, like a better godly life, a better life with Jesus. What are some blocks? You know, acknowledging that we're limited. We don't have, you know, infinite focus. We have very finite focus, a very small amount of it. And um, taking that seriously, you know, where where would it be wise to consider some discipline and reorienting our minds to what's noble, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, and to put those things into practice. And... How can we nurture our inner life to be more godly and to what end? Like, what is the reason? Like, asking the Lord about that. Like, what's the point of maybe putting in this extreme amount of work? Um, and I, I think it will be good. I think the Lord will, will surprise us all. Um, so that's where I'm going to end for today.